Hi there, welcome to Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. You can hear us on air, online, or via the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, a little later on today's show, homelessness, both here and globally. Recently in the United States, large boulders were placed on the sidewalks of San Francisco. You know why? To try to prevent the growing population of tent-dwelling homeless people. Now, the numbers are daunting, with officials quoting a 30% increase in this population since 2017. 30%, extraordinary. But don't get too comfortable. Australia has its own crisis of homeless citizens. What then can we learn from other countries to reduce the factors that leave many Australians with nowhere to sleep? Stay with us for that. But first, have you followed the many disturbing revelations and allegations about Chinese government espionage operations in Australia? Now, these include stories that Beijing tried to install an agent into federal parliament. Did you hear about the report of the alleged spy for Chinese military intelligence? He recently defected to Australia. Now, the credit goes to The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and Nine's 60 Minutes. Their joint expose once again raises the question, just what are China's intentions when it comes to Australia? And how can we as a sovereign state shape our engagement with Beijing? Or is Paul Keating right? Remember what the former Prime Minister said recently. Is all this just anti-China media hysteria? Well, as it happens, the latest quarterly essay out this week is dedicated to the subject. It's called Red Flag, Waking Up to China's Challenge. And the author is Peter Harcher. He's political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and a former Asia-Pacific editor and correspondent for the Australian Financial Review. Peter, welcome back to Between the Lines. Pleasure, Tom. Now, in the Xi Jinping era, and you document this in your book as well as in many of your columns, China's communist regime has become more authoritarian at home, assertive abroad. Question, what do you think Xi wants with his power? Well, on that exact point, the primary aim is to keep power. This has been the driving, overriding concern of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party ever since Mao set it up in the 1920s. Uh, at that point, it was just a small, you know, covert guerrilla uh, movement. Now it's verging on becoming a superpower but the one constant is that the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party is determined to keep power at any cost. And we saw that uh, brutally demonstrated in the Tiananmen Square massacre, which was defended this year by China's defense minister and, and in fact, uh, almost celebrated as a successful maneuver. This is the primary goal. And following from that is that the party wants uh, all Chinese to support and love the party with an appeal to nationalism, the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. This is the so-called dream, the China dream. It has become the signature motto, if you like, of Xi Jinping. That's in a nutshell. Okay, but where do we sit in here? What does it want from Australia? Australia is important to China for many reasons. Uh, We are an essential supporter and supplier of their economy and their food supply. They can't operate their economy without Australian resources and Australian food. Australia is important to them strategically, not only because of where it sits with a commanding presence in the the Southern Hemisphere, uh, but it's also important because it's a US ally. And one of China's overarching goals is to support its own power by breaking down the power of the US. 
Okay. Uh, now, you deal with the Chinese Communist Party's intrusions into our domestic affairs in, in quite great detail, and you tell the disturbing story of how John Garneau and his wife, Garneau, of course, is the former Herald journalist, your former colleague, Peter, and a former advisor to uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. You tell a story about how he and his wife at a Melbourne restaurant were intimidated by um, four Chinese people presumably working for the government. Are these intrusions intended to be malicious? That sort of intrusion that you've just nominated is certainly intended to be intimidating. It's intended to strike fear into, in this case, two Australian citizens in their own city, in their own country, trying to have, have lunch as it, as it just happens in Federation Square in the middle of Melbourne. All of this stuff that the Chinese have been engaged in does look aggressive and offensive. To turn the telescope around and look at it from their point of view, this is essentially a defensive motivation. It's a paranoid psychology that unless it keeps expanding its power and crushes all opposition everywhere, there is some remaining threat. Ultimately, and I quote the former head of ASIO, Duncan Lewis, in the essay. I interviewed him and he said that ultimately China is trying to, in his words, take over Australia's political system and pull the strings from afar. It wants control of our political system, in which case then, of course, all that expensive uh, military hardware, all our F-35 striker jets and the Navy and all the rest of it just becomes a bunch of useless junk if you've already got control of the decision-making centre. And meanwhile, there's been a breakdown in communications between Canberra and Beijing, when you think about it, there'd be no bilateral leaders or foreign minister visits, I think, for more than two years. Your critics would say that much of the responsibility uh, for the poor state of the relationship with China actually lies with Julie Bishop, because it was on her watch as foreign minister from 2013 to 2018 that the relationship deteriorated. Uh, people like Mike Smith, the former ANZ CEO, they reckon that Australians have been arrogant uh, Julie Bishop lecturing the Chinese that they should become a democracy. Uh, how would you respond to those critics? Well, first of all, th there has, in fact, as you say, there's been a, a freeze at the top level and other senior diplomatic contacts have also been slowed right down. I would also add that that's added uh, no great problem uh, economically. Australia two-way trade with China last year was up by 18, almost 18%, 17.5%. So it didn't translate into any meaningful effect on the Australian economy. So that's the first point. It's a bit theatrical, you know, um, and for us to jump up and down and have, have a panic about it would be just foolish. And Scott Morrison's taken a fairly realistic uh, tone on this. He said recently that when he was asked about the absence of high-level contact and whether it worried him, he said, I'm not waiting by the phone. So, you know, just a, a more sober tone. The Mike Smith comments that you refer to, Tom, I would suggest are one of the clear case study in why it's been difficult and slow for the Australian government to respond effectively to the intrusions and depredations of the Chinese state on our country for years. We, we are waking up pretty late in the peace. It took the Sam Dastyari case for Australia to realise, my goodness, you know, here is a Chinese businessman, a billionaire living in Sydney, who's bought off control of Labor Party policy, or at least one senator's view of Labor Party policy, for a few thousand bucks. And now we see it in the Independent Commission Against Corruption in New South Wales, where we see the same Chinese billionaire, Huang Gangmo, 
allegedly gave an Aldi bag with $100,000 cash in it to the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party and bought the party. I mean, he Mm. (laughs) compromised the the New South Wales party. Well, given these attempts by Beijing to interfere in our internal affairs, which you highlight in your essay, how then do you suggest uh, our policymakers, lawmakers, how do they protect our sovereignty? They've already put in place under the Turnbull government bipartisan support, the foreign interference laws. What more can we do? Yes, that's right. And that is the beginning of the of the wake-up, really, and the beginning of protecting ourselves. The foreign interference laws that Malcolm Turnbull uh, imposed with the full support of the Labor Party, I might add, Australia's been well assisted by having bipartisanship on this, they were an important improvement. They are not being enforced. It's a very lame effort so far, and we need to imp- really we need to improve it. It's been pretty much tokenistic. And we need to extend that. We can't resile from China. China is way too important to us economically. It's also going to be important to us in many other fields of cooperation, whether it's transnational crime, climate change, whatever. Looking ahead of the next century, Australia needs to be able to have a working relationship across the board with this big dominant power in our region. But to do that confidently and energetically, we need to protect ourselves effectively first, and we need to protect our democratic system, we need to protect our society, we need to protect our economic structures from Chinese intrusion. Once we've done that, once we've, if you like, metaphorically speaking, armour-plated ourselves and our democracy and our system, only then can we engage confidently with China. And I think we have a lot of steps to take to do that. One simple one that's come to the fore this week with the revelations you mentioned earlier in the news uh, about Chinese agents trying to put an agent of Chinese influence directly into the Australian parliament is this one, Tom. I think most Australians would be shocked to learn that Australian MPs and senators, when they first enter the parliament, don't need a security clearance. Mm. Well, why not? I mean, mm. it's, it's uh, foolish. Every IT worker entering a government building has to have a security mm. clearance. Why not the people who control the system? So we should simply do that. So that if you have a case like Gladys Liu, there's a lot of suspicion about her. Is she an agent of Chinese influence? Is she not? If you had a system where you'd simply had a security clearance for all new MPs and senators. There would be no suspicion about about Gladys. The public could have more confidence in the system. We need a dramatic political funding system reform. Uh, We need a federal ICAC, a federal anti-corruption commission. These are all no-regrets measures, Tom, that I think we probably should take anyway to improve the functioning of our democracy. But in this case, uh, there's an extra case and an extra urgency because we need to protect these systems from Chinese takeover. This is Tom Switzer, and my guest is Peter Harcher. He's a political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and author of the latest quarterly essay, Red Flag. Uh, Former Prime Minister Paul Keating uh, believes the media is exaggerating the China threat. Let's get your reaction to his recent remarks. There's alarm in Australia at the scale and speed of China's rise, and this comes out particularly in the hysteria in the media, especially the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but run up often clearly in the rear by the Australian. The Australian media has been recreant in its duty to the public in failing to present a balanced picture of the rise, legitimacy and importance of China, preferring instead to traffic in side plays dressed up with the cosmetics of sedition and risk. That was Paul Keating recently. Peter Hatcher, how do you respond to the former Prime Minister's charge that you and the Australian media have indulged in anti-China hysteria? I think it's a particularly, uh, shall we say, weird speech by Paul Keating. 
In particular, in that speech, Tom, on that day last week, he said there were two stories in the Sydney Morning Herald that morning which were anti-China. Is he suggesting we shouldn't run these stories? I got our editorial library, Tom, to do a a quick count. Mm. So far this year, the Herald has run 129 stories about the Chinese economy. About a third of those directly relate to uh, China's economic interactions with Australia. Yeah, but isn't Keating's point, though, that all great powers do things that advance their cause and increase their strength? But his point is that the media panic uh, just heightens all this anxiety in the community and that undermines relations with our most important trade partner. That's what Keating would say. Well, um, yes, and I think we actually have a duty to uh, inform the Australian public about the nature of this country Uh, that is our dominant economic partner and is trying to increase its influence over us. I think it's actually our responsibility to do that. What's our metric here? Is our metric the relative badness of a major power or is our metric the welfare of Australia and its citizens? Now, that's our absolute metric. Okay, but Keating's not alone here. This is Keyshaw Marble-Barney, the distinguished Singaporean intellectual. He's a former diplomat. This is what he told me last year. The only member of the permanent five which is the United States, Russia, UK, France, and China, that hasn't fought a war in 40 years. And the United States of America, in the last year of the Obama administration, it dropped 26,000 bombs on seven countries. So the Chinese will therefore ask the United States of America, great, you're telling us how to behave. Now, should we behave according to your words or should we behave according to your deeds? Uh, that's Singapore's Kishore Marbulbani on Between the Lines a year ago. Uh, what then is it about this great power, China, Peter Harcher, that increasingly worries so many Australians? Well, um, I'd say two things. First, the modern warfare that they are waging is much smarter than the traditional military warfare. They are using cyber war. They are using covert means. They are using political warfare in a much more effective way than traditional military hardware. The ultimate victory is to defeat the enemy uh, without fighting. Uh, And that's precisely what the Chinese system is doing. Peter, great to have you on the show again. Always a pleasure, Tom. That was Peter Harcher, author of Quarterly Essay, Red Flag, Waking Up to China's Challenge. That's published by Black Ink Books. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, if you live in a capital city, the familiar sight of homeless people living on the streets, it probably wouldn't surprise you, would it? Not that regional Australia is excluded from this problem. But would it surprise you to know that at last count, and I'm referring to the most recent ABS census figures, the number of homeless Australians was more than 116,000. And while this number is already disturbing, it dumbs down the fact that 44,000 of these are children. But while there is an army of paid workers and volunteers trying to turn this number around, it does keep growing. So what are we doing wrong in Australia? And is anyone anywhere else in the world doing it right? Well, my next guests have spent a lot of time thinking about this. Carlos de Berra is a research associate at the Centre for Independent Studies. It's a Sydney think tank that I head. He's written several articles and recently produced a publication about how homelessness is perceived and handled in this country. The publication is called Dying With Their Rights On, The Myths and Realities of Ending Homelessness in Australia. Hello, Carlos. Good morning, Tom. 
And to give us an international perspective, Lydia Stazen joins us from Chicago in the US. She's a director of the Institute of Global Homelessness, an emerging global movement to end homelessness. We'll ask her how that works in a moment. But first, let's turn to you, Carlos, about your publication. Let's start with a definition. How do you define homelessness? Well, that's the key question here, Tom. Homelessness is defined very broadly in Australia. Up until 2012, homelessness was broadly defined in a way that the person on the street might understand it. So that's really somebody who's living rough or on the streets. We've got a more recent definition, thanks to the ABS, that really dilutes the definition of homelessness to include a whole group of people who wouldn't have previously been considered homeless. For example, people living in an accommodation with lack of access to public spaces and with overcrowding and so forth. What that has done is it has artificially inflated the numbers of homeless people to beyond 100,000. Whereas in actual fact, if we look at the numbers of rough sleepers in Australia, they only represent about 7% of that total figure. Okay, well, you're talking about the sleeping rough term. It's what people usually think of, you know, when they think of homelessness. What proportion of homeless people are actually sleeping without any kind of shelter? Well, that's very difficult to say. I mean, within that 7% figure, there are people who are living, um, sleeping on trains, people who are sleeping literally on the streets, people who are sleeping under bridges and so forth. Um, so they're either living without any accommodation or shelter at all or in makeshift shelter and accommodation. And we would call them rough sleepers and they are the population who, in my view, are most deserving of our help and, in my view, are getting interventions at the moment which are not producing good results. And what kind of pressures um, force people into this homelessness crisis? Well, different kinds of homelessness have different causes. Um, the, the people who are sleeping rough and on the streets uh, usually have a high proportion of either undertreated mental illness and or substance abuse problems. Um, they're often people who have chronic mental illnesses and as a result of this um, have I guess, reduced decision-making capacity and reduced ability to make decisions in their best interests. This is the population that, um, in my view, uh, need to be managed more assertively by our homeless outreach teams um, and for which conventional um, and orthodox approaches, such as increasing affordable housing, um, are not working for. So I think we need, I guess, what I've called an enlightened paternalism to help manage these people living um, rough and on the streets. Okay, well, let's bring Lydia in here. You run the Institute of Global Homelessness, uh, Lydia, and that looks at this problem through an international lens. Well, how does your organisation define homelessness? Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me as part of this uh, conversation today. Really appreciate being part of the, of the discussion. Um, so, as you've pointed out, this is the key question. Homelessness means different things in different countries. And so to address that problem, several years ago, we worked with researchers to develop a comprehensive framework that outlines categories that range from people without shelter on the street to people living in crisis accommodation, like a domestic violence shelter or a refugee camp, all the way up to people living in severely inadequate or insecure accommodation. So that would be families living doubled up or squatting or living in slums. And so we use that framework and we go into countries and we say, 
you tell us where on that framework your definition is. That way we have a common understanding of how they're defining homelessness, and then we can go from there. Um, and Australia, as you've noted, takes a very inclusive definition of homelessness, whereas um, several of the countries that we work with are just focusing on that street homelessness and people living in shelters. And the Institute works with, I think it's 150 other countries. How at this stage, uh, given the data available, how does the homelessness in other countries compare with what Carlos has described in this country? He focuses a lot on mental illness. Uh, any different in those other countries and cities that you've looked at? Sure. Yeah. So I think in all countries, there's sort of commonalities in the issue of homelessness and then differences as well. I think what um, Carlos has described is very common to the developed countries. So Australia, the United States, Canada, um, the United Kingdom, where we do see that those high levels of, um, you know, mental health, physical health issues, um, substance misuse, that type of thing. I think the biggest differences among the developed countries is the political contexts and the extent to to which government um, invests in housing and homelessness services. My guests are Lydia Stazen. She's the director of the Institute of Global Homelessness and Carlos Debrera, his research associate with the Centre for Independent Studies. Carlos, in your CIS paper, you talk about the homelessness industry. Mm. Tell us more about them. Government spends about $800 million a year on homelessness and about $10 billion per annum in housing and homelessness. And despite these huge amounts of funding lobbied for by the homelessness industry, there's been virtually no reduction in the numbers of people sleeping rough um, over the past mm -hmm. decade, particularly after the, the Rudd government's report, The Road Home. That sort of failed horribly. And I think that the, the conventional and orthodox approaches to our understanding of the problem and our approach to the treatment of the problem needs to be uh, reimagined. What are they doing wrong? Well, as I think they're focusing, and, and I don't doubt their good intentions, but I think mm. they're focusing on the wrong causes and the wrong solutions. So the homelessness industry would cite what we would call structural causes of homelessness as being the most important. And that would include things like social structures, so racism, discrimination, and financial or economic structures, such as housing affordability and local employment markets. What we know is that those factors are important to a degree, but when it comes to rough sleeping, actually have very little import. Now, inc increasing the amount of public housing and social housing is, is a good thing, but we're kind of using that really quite inefficiently at the moment. Um, public housing is under-occupied, and we have lots of people being evicted for untreated mental illness and for untreated substance misuse. My view is that if we could use public housing more efficiently and more assertively manage um, people's substance abuse and mental illness, we'll help to turn off the tap of people ending up homeless on the streets. I agree with some of those critiques of the homelessness industry as well. I think we need a paradigm shift within our sector to look at what are the program models that are effectively and efficiently reducing the numbers um, of people who are having this experience, um, rather than looking at increasing the number of people that we exist to serve. So I agree with you that that paradigm shift needs to happen. I think that we're in the middle of that paradigm shift and, and IGH is working to shift that perspective to looking at the most efficient use of the resources that we have. Um, from what we've studied, the Scandinavian countries, so Finland, Norway, Sweden, are those that have been um, kind of working at 
at this for the longest time and are the most heavily invested in it. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the countries with the lowest incidence of homelessness. So where has it worked? You know, Sweden comes to mind. They've really been working on this since the 1950s. I think currently about one and a half million Swedes live in public housing. So that's 15% of the population. Um, Fully half of their rental housing is owned by the municipality, but then managed by um, other housing companies. And what I think is really interesting about that from from a market perspective is that these companies that are managing the housing have essentially had to compete with each other for tenants. And so you see that they're providing a high quality um, of housing and services to those tenants. The, the conventional wisdom here, Carlos, is that government has aimed for a balance between welfare and personal obligation. Mm. Uh, you'd argue that this approach uh, it does not really work for solving homelessness. Uh, why? The balance has been too far in the wrong direction um, for at least the past couple of decades. Um, I think that certainly in regards to public housing, to taxpayer-funded housing, there has been inadequate expectation of tenants to abstain from uh, antisocial behaviours and from um, substance misuse. We have an, an, an epidemic of methamphetamine abuse at the moment in our um, public housing. And these personal behaviours at the moment are, I think, tolerated to too high a degree. At the moment, it's possible for people in public housing to access psychosocial supports, but this is only um, possible on a voluntary basis at the moment. Isn't that the, really the issue here, Lydia, that uh, the governments are too focused on welfare and not doing enough to combat the underlying causes of this mental illness, but also uh, substance abuse? I guess what I would say about that is um, there there needs to be a a, a, a cross-sector approach to this, right? So right now what we see is that the homeless services are sort of siloed aside from mental health services, aside from um, physical health services, and we need more cross-sector collaboration, um, and that leads to more efficient use of resources so that those um, kind of co-occurring um, you know, disabilities are able to be addressed in a more meaningful way using a variety of different resources that are there to serve them. Now, let's get back to the conclusions of your paper, Carlos. In a nutshell, what should government be doing now to address this homeless problem? Where I think we need to have a paradigm shift is is in three main areas. One is really turning off the tap of people entering the streets, which we're we've discussed. The the second is improving substance misuse and mental health treatments, and that would include things like increasing the number of acute and longer-term psychiatric beds, more assertively managing drug and alcohol problems without victim blaming. And then we need more homeless hostel beds. I know in the Mm. United States, the number of homeless on the streets has an inverse correlation with the number of homeless hostel beds available. In New York, for example, where there are over 600 um, homeless hostels, they have much less of a rough sleeping problem than in Los Angeles, where those numbers of hostel beds are far fewer. And then I guess finally, uh, an area I think where we could improve is is in appointing public guardians to manage or to look after the interests of rough sleepers who lack decision-making capacity. I, I think 
And I'd agree with Lydia here, it has to be a, a multi-pronged, multi-agency approach, but focusing more on individual factors than structural factors. Lydia, finally, what do you think, based on what you've heard from Carlos and your understanding of the issue in this country, what could Australia learn from the multi-country approach to solving homelessness that your institute practices? Yeah, well, I'm actually, I'm very happy to say that Australia is learning from our approach. Both Adelaide and Sydney are part of our um, city's uh, cohort that we do. Um, and so then I think just the last piece to add is, you know, I think the best use of our kind of intellectual and academic energy is to just regularly and rigorously be reviewing the outcomes and efficacy of different program models. Um, and then those are the program models that we ought to be seeing more investment in. Lydia, Carlos, thank you so much for being on RN today. Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much. Now, my guests are Carlos Debrera. He's a research associate with the Centre for Independent Studies. He wrote the paper, Dying With Their Rights on the Myths and Realities of Ending Homelessness in Australia. We'll put a link to that on our website. And Lydia Stazen is director of the Institute of Global Homelessness and Emerging Global Movement to End Homelessness. And we'll put a link to that on our website. Well, that's all for the program this week. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to hear this or any other episodes, why don't you download the ABC Listen app? You'll find Between the Lines and all your favourite RN programs in one spot. You can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us, of course, at abc.net.au slash RN. Now, join us next week on Between the Lines to meet former ABC Managing Director David Hill. What did he find when he was going through the archives of early European settlement to write his book called Convict Colony? Best book of the year in my judgment. I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me on Between the Lines. Let's catch up next week.